Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Psalm 119, 57 through 64, these are the words of God. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Last week, we learned that Jesus is our portion and he is our cup. Uh, That through him, we have provision and we have protection, that he is the bread and he is the cup uh, that sustains our life, that brings and sustains our life. We We reinforced these truths as we recapped the entire message by looking, reflecting on Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here's what Deuteronomy 8 says, and as we did this, we also asked some important questions, and I'm going to ask them again for you, but the verses will be on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 says, uh, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commands or not. Now, the questions that we asked, of course, are, uh, are are our hearts after God? Is that where we're at? Uh, Have we sanctified Christ as Lord? Are we looking to him and him alone as our portion? Uh, Verse 3 goes on to say, he humbled you and let you go hungry. And I think that that's something that we need to pause for on a regular basis to to. Just observe the sovereignty of God. Just observe the character of God. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Acknowledging that God both gives and takes away is a key element of Christianity, uh, but it is also a way in which God trains us in our faith. Uh, Are we trusting God in this process is the question that we asked last week. Do we trust that God is a good giver, but he is also a good taker-awayer? That's a technical term there. Anyway, so God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and hopefully we can remain content with what he has given us. Then verse 4 went on. It said, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor your foot swell these 40 years. Do we trust God for our provision? That's an important question. Do we pr- trust him for our provision? Looking to him only for what we need instead of constantly looking to ourselves to answer the question. And then finally, verses 5 and 6, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. How many of you know that the Bible says that God uh, disciplines those he loves? So to be disciplined is a wonderful thing. It means that he actually loves you. It is if God doesn't discipline you that we have a serious problem. (laughs) Uh, He has abandoned you. He has let you go. 
Uh, That is a freedom you do not want, trust me. So he is disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. We are God's children, church. We are the sheep of his pasture. Uh, He is to be our complete portion all the days of our life. Are we open to being sanctified and disciplined by him so that we can fully understand this truth? It's a good question, and it's something we should ask ourselves every day. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this section of Psalm 119, but we're going to shift our minds. Uh, We're going to hold the lens, hold the filter of God being our portion firmly uh, in our brains, but the goal is to pull out all the practical effects that come with, at least according to these eight verses, the practical effects that come with understanding God as our portion or living by that truth and committing to it. We'll begin with the two verses that we went over last week, because yes, we only got through two verses. Don't smirk at me, Sean. We only got through two verses. That was intentional whether you like it or not. Anyway, so so we're going to go through those two verses and then we'll expand for everything. So here's what 57 and 58 say again. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. Now what we see in these two verses can be outlined as follows. Declaration, 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 petition. Three declarations and a petition. So the first declaration is this, that God was David's portion. Look again at what he said. The Lord is my portion. He's not asking about that. He's just stating that fact. The Lord is my portion. The second declaration is a promise to keep God's word. That's the Levitical, uh, the Levitical vow that I alluded to last week. So God is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. That's the second uh, promise or declaration. The third declaration was not only to seek God, but but also the quality of the seeking. He said, I'm going to seek God with all my heart. That's what I want to do all the days of my life. It's just a challenge. There are times when our hearts get distracted, our hearts get moved in different ways, but he wants to seek God with all his heart. And then finally, and this is going to be our focus today, we have the petition. David petitions God to be gracious according to his word. Be gracious to me, According to your word. I love that David petitions God for grace. Did you know you can do that? (laughs) You can petition God for grace. Grace is unmerited favor. But just like placing faith in Jesus, praying for grace is not a meritorious act. In other words, it doesn't gain you anything just because you've done something. When we put our faith in King Jesus, what are we doing? We're simply admitting that we cannot save ourselves. Uh, this is not a work, except, or, except for to some obscure uh, doctrinal ideas in the church today. It's not a work. It's to accept what is simply true. When we pray for grace, we're not doing anything to earn grace. God is still in control. He still possesses discretionary power. Now, praise God, he is gracious forever, that he is uh, eternally loving and kind, but we'll, we'll see that. If, if God didn't hold a, a discretionary power when it came to grace, then we wouldn't be dealing with grace. We would be dealing with a uh, if this, then that. If you'll pray, God will do something for you. But that's not the way it works. Uh, the idea, though, is still that we should pray to God. Notice that even uh, with David's three declarations, he still requests God's grace. In some way, David has something to stand on, uh, if, arguably. He has something to stand on by saying, I sought you with my whole heart. 
I did all of this, Lord. I made you my portion. You're my everything. But he still then asked God to be gracious to him. Although David did this boldly, uh, he, he doesn't do it with a heart of entitlement. And I need you all to hear me because this is the problem in our world today. He didn't come to God with a heart of entitlement. Uh, he, he didn't expect that God must do anything for him. He just knew the character of the God he was petitioning. Another thing that I want to point out is that David does at least approach God's throne. This is, this is another problem that we have. It's easy to get caught up in two, uh, two thoughts. We either boldly approach God's throne or we brashly approach God's throne. We either, we either approach God's throne with humility or we approach God's throne with some sort of entitlement. But there is a third option, and it is the most common option among most people, among people, and that is to not approach God at all. We just don't go to him. There are many reasons why we avoid God. I've heard people say that God simply doesn't have time for their issues. How many of you have felt that way? God doesn't have time for my stuff. Why would he bother with me? Or uh, that your problem is too small or maybe even too big. Those are excuses that I hear from people. God doesn't need to hear me. Or that God simply doesn't care about my concerns. In the first and second scenarios, the problem is, is that God apparently isn't patient or he isn't big enough to shoulder our issues, which is patently absurd. <laughs> God is definitely big enough to handle any issue. Meanwhile, in the third scenario, uh, there seems to be a lack of faith or trust in God uh, for him to be who he claims to be, which is a generous God, a faithful and a loving God. In our avoiding God, we're missing out on the comfort that he gives, church. In our avoiding seeking God through prayer, we are shortchanging ourselves for a relationship, for a communion with our Heavenly Father. And we need to not do this. The comfort that flows because of God's loving kindness is a comfort that flows when we run to Him. Amen? So we've got to run to our Heavenly Father. I know that you already know this, but we are living in a season of extreme anxiety in America right now. <gasps> Surprise. Such a shock, right? And it's going to get even more uh, insane as we go to November. But uh, although we have this, um, we have been taught as Christians to cast our cares upon God. That word in the scriptures, cast your cares, the word care, is a Greek term for anxiety. So it says, cast your anxieties on God. We're in a heightened state of anxiety. We should be going to God with this. But the problem is we don't. We hold our anxieties. Or we post about it on Facebook. Smile. So we, we've got all this anxiety. 1 Peter 5, 7 not only calls us to this type of burden casting, this anxiety casting on God, but Peter also gives us the reason for it. And it's all central to what I've already shared with you. This was the same for David. David knew this. That is, that we are to cast our cares on God because what? He cares for us. We're to cast our cares on God because God is gracious. Psalm 55, 22 is David's version of 1 Peter 5. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will sustain you. Why? Because God is a sustainer. God is gracious. God is kind. This is his character, church. 
This is a very practical truth for today. Those who believe and declare God to be their portion can and should boldly approach God's throne. Uh, We should appeal confidently to his mercy. We should never be silent in the face of our needs. How many of you have struggled with silence in the face of your need? Don't be silent with me now. Raise your hand, right? You've been silent. And maybe for the reasons that I've given. And maybe you have more, and I'd like to hear of those further reasons. But we should not remain silent, church. We should never assume that our problems are too small, and we should never assume that our problems are too large for God. We're not taxing God's bandwidth. I hope you know this, right? Uh, We're not annoying him with our concerns. He's not a petty God. He's not impatient. He's willing to hear us out. Just consider this idea. If you believe that your burden is too much or too little for God, then, and you attempt to carry it yourself, what you're effectively saying is that you're bigger than God. Is that not what you're saying? If you're carrying the burden yourself and not giving it to the God who alone can carry the burden, are you not saying that you're bigger than our Savior, than our King? This is foolishness, church. But we do it all the time. David's appeal here also has a built-in filter. I hope you'll notice this from the verse. Be gracious to me according to your word. Here's another reason why you and I should know God's word better than we actually do. Um, Because when we know God's word, when we study God's word, we actually know how God is going to answer. I believe that God has responded to most of our requests. We just didn't know because we don't know his word. Therefore, we don't know how God answers. We keep assuming that he's going to answer exactly the way we think, but he has said over and over in his word how his character operates. Maybe we would get the answer to our prayer or recognize the answer to our prayer if we actually knew his word better. Uh, As I shared last week, much of what is being promised in the scripture is both provision and protection. But there's a problem with thinking beyond this or below this. On one hand, if we expect that God, um, uh, if we expect things that God never promised, uh, we are, we should welcome disappointment, (laughs) right? Like, God promised me health, wealth, and wisdom. No, he didn't, so quit doing that. And turn off Joel Osteen more, right? So he's not, he's not offered you those kinds of things. On the other hand, if you expect so little of God you never actually talk to him, you're equally as wrong. And you don't have Joel Osteen saying that to you. You have you saying that to you. So we need to continue to trust God, but we need to trust him from what his word actually says. If God is our portion, then we are not only okay with his gracious handling of our circumstances, we're actually longing to see how he'll handle them. Almost like a, a son watching his father come through on a, on a big project or on building him something. You just want to see how he's going to do it. So this is what we're supposed to do. We'll come back to this idea of grace in a little bit. So let's turn to verses 59 and 60. Here's what the Word of God says again. I consider my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Just like Peter after the rooster crowed three times and the prodigal son when he was neck deep in pig swaller, uh, David's consideration of his own ways is all about regret. 
Uh, It was an honest reflection on what had gotten him to the place that he was at. This was a reflection on David's sin. I can prove it to you because the next line is that he turned. The truth is most of us only consider uh, our ways after they've been found wanting, after we've hit a wall. David was no different. He's a man after God's heart, but he's also a sinner just like we are. Notice that he didn't merely consider the ways, though. He turned, right? This wasn't a a therapeutic self-reflection. I'm just thinking about my ways, Lord, and then I'm considering yours. That's not what's happening. David uh, reflects on his sin, and then he turns. What does it mean by turn again? It means repentance. This this language is repeated uh, so, so many times in Scripture, it is unbelievable. The turning is, in fact, repentance. We should all know this by now, but repentance is not merely feeling sorry or regretting our actions, although that will accompany repentance. Genuine repentance is turning from our ways, which David was doing, to God's ways. Again, this is what Peter does after the rooster crows and what the prodigal son does when he recognizes the kindness of his father or remembers the kindness of his father. Repentance should be the M.O. of God's people. It should be your daily duty. And listen, I, just, I, I need you to hear me here. When you read the scriptures, when you give your heart to reading the scriptures without agendas and without some sort of strange pride that defends yourself constantly, what you will realize is there are repeated instances in the scripture where people are repenting, where people are calling on God, when it doesn't even appear they did anything wrong. There are many times. uh, National repentance was a call for Israel many times. They all turned. I've been giving a lot of thought to this with regard to uh, the passage of Scripture most of us are familiar with that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... And will turn from their what? Wicked ways, that's repentance. I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. How many of you know this promise of God uh, in his scripture? Well, the scripture also says that the one who, the the man who, the nation who uh, recognizes God as their Lord, he will be their Lord. Okay, that's an amazing idea. That goes beyond Israel. It means if we will acknowledge him as Lord, he will be our Lord. But here is where it's really interesting. Among Christians, the scripture tells us, uh, among Israel, the scripture told them, humble yourself, turn from your wicked ways, and I'll heal your land. Here's what the church does with passages like that today. What the church does with this is says, many, many of us do this with individual repentance as well, and we say, I didn't do anything wrong, so I'm not repenting. Right there, you have a bad attitude of pride, and trust me, you need to repent for that as well. But Israel repented of what was going wrong in their world. And when you read the scripture, read Jeremiah, read the prophets, many of the prophets had not done anything, and they wept and they prayed. Read Ezra. Ezra is a fascinating story because Ezra comes to his knees, he calls out to God, and he repents. And the scripture just before he repents says that Ezra had not gone astray. He had not done what all these other people had done. Why is Ezra repenting? Because Ezra sees himself as a part of something bigger. 
Ezra sees himself as a part of a collective people of God, not in a worldly sense, but in a covenant sense. And we need to get back to this. As Christians, repentance should mark us, whether it's personal violation of God's commands or whether it is because we collectively belong to one another and we need to call on God. Church, we need to be on our knees on a regular basis in repentance, not because, not because hopefully the church is out murdering its babies. Hopefully, not because the church is practicing all manner of sexual uh, depravity. Hopefully, that's not why we're repenting. But we ought to be repenting because we never say anything. We ought to repent because we're too quiet. This is a sin, church. This is us violating who God is. So repentance is the M.O. of God's people. We're supposed to be this people all the days of our life. But what we often do is say, I've got nothing to repent for. And my response to you is, that heart is enough. That heart is enough to repent now. We've got to turn around. Repentance is not just about sinners turning to God. For us, repentance was the same as David. It's it's an idea of living a life pure and holy before God. It's turning to him for sanctification. In this psalm, we're dealing with a David who is already in covenant with God, so he's not being saved again. This is really important. He's not not having a come-to-Jesus moment every five seconds. This isn't a Baptist altar call where every week you got somebody coming to Jesus for the 45th time, right? That's, That's not what happens here. Okay, so I'm picking today, Uh, my bad. (laughs) Suck it up. Okay, anyway, so this repentance is a continual turning back to God. It's a repentance unto sanctification. It's a repentance unto righteous living. It's a repentance unto godly ways all the days of our life. We're all going to face the need for this sort of repentance. We do today, and we're going to need it tomorrow, too. We are all prone to wander. Did you know that? I hate this reality, but we are prone to wander. Wander from God's ways. Uh, we need to remain humble, though, in, this, in the face of this reality. You remember the, the great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, right? It says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Hear my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We have to recognize our proclivity for getting off course, church. We just do this a lot. Uh, And when we do that, we've got to consider our ways, just as David did. Reflect on who you are. Admit you're a sinner. Hi, my name's Nathan. I'm a sinner. And then turn and go back towards God. We fall on his grace every time we do it. And the reason why we're okay to do repentance like this is because we truly believe God to be gracious. This consideration is why the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that they were to test themselves to see if they were in the faith. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. I I gave my life to Jesus. I'm done. That's just not a biblical heart. That's a modern heart, and it's nonsense. Uh, There's another thing that we see uh, in David over the long haul that we have to learn from. Something that comes with increased maturity, and that is the ability and the willingness to consider our ways before we arrive at the consequences. (laughs) 
right? This is what every parent is trying to do with their child, amen, right? You're like, okay, you, you hit that thing three times with your head. Let's try not to next time, okay? So we've got to consider the consequences before we arrive, considering our ways before the rooster crows, before the, the pig mud gets too high. Uh, we've got to do this, right? This is, this is not easy. It's not easy to have this kind of discernment, but it is important for us to do it. And when we understand that God's way gives us an out when we're tempted, uh, this is not only possible, but it's probable that we'll walk in it. The person whose portion is God will have a a life marked by repentance, a life marked by increased obedience, a life marked by a greater level of discernment concerning God's ways versus their own. Every day that I grow, I get I get better, in a sense, of understanding what God expects of me. Uh, Have I arrived? If I said I had, you probably should ask me to repent. Right? So, of course, I haven't arrived. But we have to keep fighting for this, keep moving forward. Uh, I hope you understand that this means uh, we're not beyond faltering. We're not beyond making mistakes. We just have to remain humble, teachable, and vigilant as we go forward. Uh, Next is a lesson that I've taught my girls a thousand times for as long as I can remember. Uh, This is what I say to them all the time. I have all these magic phrases in our house, uh, but my phrase is delayed obedience is disobedience. When I was sharing my message in brief with Sarah at the table uh, one morning, uh, Sam says, I've heard that since I was born. I'm like, thank you, Sam. It just uh, makes me me so happy. Anyway, (laughs) like... That's my girl right there anyway. So delayed obedience is disobedience. (laughs) Heard it since I was born. Good for you. David not only turned to God's way, that's repentance, but he also did so with haste. That's what the text says, right? He did so without delay. Here's another truism for you. Uh, Genuine transformation means that the allure of sin, the allure of sin in our life doesn't hold a candle to the glory in God's righteousness, okay? The allure of sin doesn't hold a candle to the glory of God's righteousness. If I I offered you a love that uh, makes you feel safe, makes you feel protected, makes you feel honored, and mind you, this is exactly the love that God has offered us, each and every one of us, if I offered you that over and against the supposed love of this world, no matter... uh, no matter what was in your heart at that moment, you would be running towards that love. You would, you would uh, you'd hike up that skirt, you'd pull up those jeans, and you'd bolt. Because this is a kind of love that is unmatched. This is the kind of love that God offers. We're to chase after it. We're, we're to do so with haste. We're to do so without delay. We're to do so according to the Apostle Paul in such a way as to win the prize. You know what it takes to run a race to win a prize, right? Run faster than everybody else. <laughs> that means you got to book it. Okay, David understood this idea, so he repented and he ran towards God. If God is our portion, church, repentance and quick obedience will be the constitution of our lives. Repentance and quick obedience. Let me offer an, another brief idea about how repentance comes. And I want your undivided attention on this one. Okay, if God is our portion, then what do we know? We know that God is gracious. Amen? Can I get an amen? 
This is, this is why, according to the Scripture, we turn to God. Scripture teaches plainly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Can I get an amen again? But the Scripture also teaches it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Now, why do I say that? And why did I use but there? Mr. John Pryor called me out on this a couple of weeks ago. And it's really important. There's always a reason in my head for the things I say. The reason is because they seem to have very different aims, okay? The fear of the Lord is to bring us wisdom, is to train us in righteousness. But the kindness of God is what, church, will always lead us to repentance. Sure, fearing the Lord and the wisdom that results makes us keenly aware of how we fall short of God's grace, right? Of of His law. We fall short constantly. But Scripture is clear. It's kindness alone that turns us. Why is it kindness? Because the fear of the Lord shows us a mirror. The fear of the Lord presents us with the law, doesn't it? It shows us a mirror, and in that mirror, what do we have? A reflection of our depravity, a reflection of our brokenness, and everything that goes with us. It's the kindness of God that shifts that mirror to where the reflection we see is actually King Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his perfection, instead of ourselves. If you do nothing but look at yourself, you will be depressed. Can I get an amen? This is what is so wrong in the self-help world of today. All it ever provides for you is a mirror to look at yourself. And it's no wonder we're still depressed (laughs) because you never get out of it. As soon as you uh, pretend in your brain that something is better than it really is, you notice another flaw in you. This is a fact. And so what the the, uh, fear of the Lord does is it provides a mirror that shines straight in you. It says, sorry, Sean, you're a sinner, you're crazy. Some reason Nathan likes you, but <laughs> yeah, you're a sinner. But what the kindness of God does, and it's the only, it's gotta be God, church. The kindness of God takes that mirror through his power and shifts it. So what you see when you look in that mirror is his son who's standing next to you, who is keeping you and protecting you and providing for you. Fearing the Lord and the wisdom that results is a good thing. I'm not setting these. I'm not setting these uh, at odds with each other. I'm showing you that they're different. They're different, and they're different for a purpose. You see, I was was raised in a different environment than some of you. Uh, I often talk about the difference between um, license and legalism, right? Uh, License and legalism, or license and law. Uh, Law is the is the way that many people are brought up to where they feel, for some reason, they feel that they have to do right to do all these things to make God love them, okay? And they strive and they work and they work and they work and they never seem to get there. Uh, I was raised in a place where I was told at all times I was loved. I was also told at all times that God loved me and he loved me fiercely, He loved me deeply and that he was willing to do whatever it took, run off the porch after me in in repentance for me. It was a beautiful picture that I had. 
My tendency, though, in growing up in that world was that I ran the risk of believing in license. And that is that I could sin and grace would abound. Because why? God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. I can sin. Grace will abound. Many of you uh, were probably brought up in another place, and that is law-keeping. And that is, if you didn't do it right, God wasn't going to love you. And what that led to is you feeling like you could never please God, or that he never actually loved you. And I ask for your forgiveness already, but I, that is so foreign to me, I can't really help. I have no idea what that world is like. But it makes for a strange disconnect in preaching and teaching. Because where I come from, people need to hear more about the law of God because they've abandoned it. (laughs) They've run so far from it. Because, well, grace will abound. We'll all be good. Many of you, though, have probably come from the place where you're like, I've heard the Bible smacked over my head all my life. I've had it beat over my head all my life. I don't even know what to do. Is God still mad at me? All I want to tell you is that he loves you. He does love you. He does love you. And inside of that mercy, what are you called to? In view of that mercy, present your body as a living sacrifice. In view of mercy, you obey. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? And guess what? In view of that mercy, I should obey too. We're all on the same page page again. So I, I wanted to clear that up for you a little bit because there are such disconnects. And I really don't even know how the other half thinks. Other half lives. It's really strange to me. The law will show us how we've missed the mark, church. It also shows the penalty of falling short, but the kindness of God reveals that there is a merciful plan for restoration. The reflection in that mirror that shows Jesus says we have a way out. It's not something we deserve, but it falls right in line with God's character. Okay, let's keep moving forward because I am definitely running out of time. Verse 61, the uh, the cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. Although God, being our portion, will lead us to repentance and ready obedience, there is no promise that our difficulties uh, will be removed. I think I need to say that again. (laughs) Although God, being our portion, will lead to repentance and ready obedience, there is no promise that our difficulties will be removed. No matter what hocus-pocus your pastor has taught you, in the past. Another way of looking at this is that there may be lasting consequences for our choices, but we, we will endure them. Yet there is a better promise that remains. Although the cords of the wicked may encircle us, God is still there. Even though an enemy may be encamped all about us, God is bigger than any foe that we face. It's a fact, church. We do the church a great disservice, pastors mainly, but I believe that the church has adopted these ideas and has screwed everything up. But we do the church a disservice in promoting ideas of peace and prosperity simply does not promise. It does not speak of these things. For example, God God doesn't promise a cessation of trial, trouble, pain, sickness, war. The list can go on. He does not do it. It doesn't matter what somebody told you. He doesn't promise it. The greater promise in Scripture is that God will give you peace, a peace that passes understanding in the midst of all of those issues. Think about the three Hebrew children and walking through the fire, or Daniel in the lion's den. If we look back to Deuteronomy 8, we will discover that this is entirely in line with God's character. 
Because God will remove stuff from us. God will withhold things from us to train us in faith. But guess what? He loves those he disciplines. He's always doing well for us, church. He's training us. There's a, a beautiful story in 2 Kings chapter 6 uh, that stars Elisha. I love the stories of Elijah and Elisha. But this is Elisha. That's uh, Elijah's, uh, Elijah's underling at one point. He ends up with a double portion, and he's an awesome dude. But, so Elisha and his servant are here, and I believe that this provides some amazing encouragement. Look at what happens. Practical steps, too. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And his servant said to him, "Uh uh-oh, that's what he said. That's the Nathan version. Alas, my master, what shall we do? What shall we do? So he answered, this is Elisha answering his servant, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now that sounds awesome, doesn't it? I'm, I'm game. I'm like, Lord, open my eyes. I'm ready for this kind of thing, right? Elisha did not respond to his servant's question of what shall I do with, well, claim by faith that your enemy is gone. That's the modern church's problem, right? Elijah doesn't say, well, just walk as though your enemy doesn't exist. That's stupid too, right? He also doesn't say, well, God promised no enemies for those who love him. I guess you don't really love him. Nice spiritual guilt trip. Don't you love those? And yet the church is filled with this nonsense. Instead, the command is don't fear, The truth is the enemy's real, but God is bigger. Come on, you guys need to get fired up, right? I'm going to a Pentecostal church next week. Anyway, they won't accept me there, trust me, (laughs) because of this very message. Anyway, the command is don't fear. The truth is the enemy is real, but God is greater. The action was a prayer asking a gracious God to open his servant's eyes, which is what most of us need. We need eyes to see what is real and what is still hopeful for us, what is still true in God's ways. This is not some fairy tale idea that an enemy doesn't exist or that pain doesn't exist or that sickness is no longer around. Instead, it's that God's provision and his protection is ever present. Amen. I'll amen myself. The Apostle Paul showed us this same truth in his second letter to the Corinthians. Here's what he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted. Say that with me, church. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Ah, there's a difference there but not crushed. Perplexed. Say that with me. Perplexed. Most of you are perplexed at my preaching. Anyway, (laughs) but not despairing, right? Not despairing. Persecuted. Say that with me. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Say this one too. Struck down. What? No fair. Struck down. Not destroyed though. 
always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Not sometimes, not just when somebody doesn't like your Christianity, always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. If God is our portion, church, we will not be crushed, forsaken, destroyed, or filled with despair. Can I get an amen on that one? Ah, but wait, because no preacher just does it all, okay? It, it is true that we will not be crushed, forsaken, destroyed, or filled with despair. But it is true that we will be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. Sounds like an awesome message. Come back next week. I'll give you more. Right? Come back where we get all kinds of perplexed. What fun. If God is our portion, church, we won't be crushed, forsaken, destroyed, or filled with despair. Instead, we will say the same thing that David does. Although the cords of the wicked encircle me, I have you, Lord. I have your word. I have your truth. I know that you are gracious, that you are mighty, that you endure forever. I know this truth. Psalm 91, 1 and 2, this is the greatest motto for the people of God, or at least the final piece is, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You know when you go into a shelter, right? When there's a storm. You know when you go into a refuge, right? When there's an enemy. Those are all real. But here's what we say. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I got nothing to fear. Amen? have nothing to fear. Verse 62. Keep moving, guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there, I promise. At midnight I shall rise and give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. The idea uh, or of night or midnight or darkness or even the deep of the waters is a very strange idea to modern readers, but David knew what he meant by it. The term is pronounced Lila, and it means, among many other things, adversity, because an ancient mind saw darkness and the waters, the darkness of the deep, as an evil. To the ancient mind, that was, that was very clear to them, but David didn't fear in the midst of that. Why? Because God was his portion. He knew that God had been Lord over all those things, all those unknown things, even from the beginning. God knew that David uh, that God uh, David knew that God's spirit hovered over the waters of the deep at creation. David knew that God is the one who was lord over the flood with Noah. David knew that God was protecting him even through all of his night watches and all of his tear-filled bed, beds and he went through a lot of them. God was always in control and David understood it. So David didn't have to fear. There's darkness at every turn, church, but God is still Lord over all things. Can I get an amen? amen. He, is still, he is still Lord over everything. Because of this, we should actually praise God in the midst of storms. David's response, did you notice it? David's response wasn't just, well, good, I'll be okay. God's on the throne, I'll be okay. It wasn't just apathy. Instead, he's rejoicing. He's praising God. He's jumping up and down. And in one case, just like we see in Elisha, uh, that, that praise comes through peace. Just having a perfect peace is a praise to God. We see the same thing in Acts 16.25 uh, when Paul is imprisoned for his faith. He's singing with Silas in the prison. How many of you want to be able to do that when life is hard? Yeah, I want to be able to do that. Am I there? <laughs> no. No. I just sit and cry whining in my room about how horrible life is and God's going still king 
still in control. Verse 63, let's go to that one. I am a companion of all those who fear you and those who keep your precepts. This one's going to hit some uh, a little bit hard. It's clear that God loves unity, church. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Notice at creation, God steps back and declares all things good. Well, he declares unity good the same. It is good and pleasing for brothers to dwell together in unity. In John 17.22, Jesus calls out for this unity as well. Uh, you can find that in uh, John 17.22 and 23. So it's no question that God wants unity. The question is, how do we get to this unity? And the answer is, God has to be our portion. If God is our portion, all the rest takes care of itself. Unity happens. Can you say that with me? Unity happens. That's what happens when God is our portion. All too often, the church looks for ways to manufacture unity. And of course, all that ends up happening with this is uniformity. So we all look the same, but our hearts are very different from one another. We want to look the same, whether it's through appearance, cultural expectations, traditions, creedal adherence, doctrinal fidelity, whatever it is, doesn't matter. We're just looking for uniformity. But this will never lead to the unity that David is talking about, because this is a spiritual unity that God alone provides. This may be a strange analogy, but no matter how hard an apple tree tries to be an orange tree, even if it could find itself planted in an orange orchard, will not produce oranges. It can look like it belongs, but it doesn't mean it belongs. And no matter where an apple tree is planted, whoever it's separated from, it will always be in unity with all other apple trees. Does that make sense? Right? Because why? Because it produces a certain kind of fruit. Apples. And see, the person who gave me this did not know that that was a part of the sermon. Did you give that to me? Did you really give it to me? Thank you. Good. Awesome. I knew it. I, I think you're applauding because he caught it because that wasn't staged. So I, I just, I don't stage things. It doesn't work for me. So David declares that I am a companion of those who do two things. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. You want true unity in the church? It needs to be marked by people who fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Doesn't matter if you're Baptist, Presbyterian, or whatever. Fear the Lord, keep his commandments. And just so you know, that's unheard of what you just heard because that's a Baptist who said amen like a Pentecostal. Anyway, so I'm just letting you know that that's out loud. Or a Southern Baptist, maybe, right? Southern Baptists do this. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Okay, so in... In uh, Scripture, Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers were outside and they wanted to talk to him. Jesus asked this rhetorical question. He says, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? What was his answer to his own question? Those who do the will of my father. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. This is what it's all about. Okay, last verse. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I promised earlier that we'd get back to this mercy thing. The Lord was David's portion, right? And he appealed to God's mercy. But why? He appealed to God's mercy because he knew that God's mercy was everlasting. He knew that it filled the earth. He does not have a view of God's mercy like we do. God's mercy is not like a, a, a vending machine about to run out of whatever it's producing. God does not end. It does not run dry. So David repeatedly calls on God for his mercy, not because God owes him anything, but because he knows it's who God is. 
Some of you have stopped talking to God. You've stopped asking him for anything. And here is the real heart behind it. You actually believe he's run out. You believe he doesn't care about you. He's run out of love for you. He's run out of mercy to give to you. He's run out of patience with you. He's not run out. While there's a day called today, he wants to save you and love you. We've got to remember this, church. We've got to remember this. Okay, so how do we wrap all this up? If the Lord is our portion, here are our practical steps. We will boldly and confidently seek his mercy through prayer. Boldly and confidently. Can you say that with me? Boldly and confidently. That shows you're not bold or confident. Okay, do it again. Boldly and confidently. That's what we're supposed to do. Seek his mercy through prayer. Number two, we will live a life of ongoing repentance, sprinting after his ways. In such a way as to win the prize, church. Number three, in the face of adversity, we're not going to pretend adversity doesn't exist. I mean, you can, but we're all wondering what you're doing, right? Instead, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to overcome the adversity. Trust the Lord to bring you through the adversity. Trust the Lord. Number four, final one. When God is our portion, we will stand united with all those who fear him and keep his commandments. We will not have to manufacture unity. It will be done for us. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.